welcome everyone to the Lunar Ceasefire Steven Universe Fan Podcast. This is episode 32, and on today's episode, we're going to be talking about episode 7 of Steven Universe, Bubble Buddies. My name is Ken Davis, and hosting with me today are... I'm GC13. I am Dakota. And we also have a very special guest today, host of the Toon Goons Podcast. We have... Nina. Nice to meet you guys. Yeah, nice to meet you. Super, super cool. Toon Goons does a lot of episodes about Steven Universe. They're a general animation podcast, but uh, you guys should definitely check them out. I am definitely enjoying what I've heard so far. Oh, that's that's really nice. Yeah, we put a lot of effort into it, try to cover a lot of different shows, but Steven Universe is definitely all of our favorites, and we talk about it the most. So <laughs> Super cool. So for uh, Bubble Buddies, anyone have any strong opinions? You know... I'm just going to say this about Bubble Buddies. This was the seventh ep- episode of the series, and we still had no idea what we as fans were getting into with this series. Because I don't know if any of you guys thought this. But when I watched it, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be so cool if Connie came back and she was a returning character? You, you know, I, I didn't know <laughs> how much this show loved its continuity. Yeah, She's in the opening, though. She is, that's true. I don't know. I, I know how central a character she is, and I look at her in the opening, and I find it hard to believe that she's the same character. I mean, even in Bubble Buddies, yeah. you see how much she's changed hanging out with Steven. It's amazing. Like It seems like the show in general has changed so much in the not that long amount of time that it's been on the air. Like I mean, there's the obvious stuff, like, you know, Steven's voice has changed a little bit, but like it's... Like a completely different show than what we are dealing with right now. Oh yeah, no more of that Monster of the Week stuff. It was a great start, but we're on to bigger and better things. Speaking of Steven's voice, do you think that was intentional, how they made his voice deeper as the series went along? Or do you think that was just the result of Zach Callison becoming a young man and letting his flowers bloom? GC's theory is that Zach got better at doing the voice, or he had a better idea of what type of voice he was trying to project as the series went along. I think it has at least something to do with him developing, but I'm sure that that's a large part of it as well. I mean, he's already like 18 years old. Like, he was 18 years old or so when the series started, so it's not like he went through puberty at that point in time. Yeah, he was like 17 or something. He's like 19, I think, Yeah, he he wasn't like, he didn't go through puberty. Like, I remember watching an interview with him saying that he had had that trouble of being a child actor, and then he went through puberty, and he was having trouble getting roles, but he had already, his voice had already dropped by the time he was cast. Yeah, he was probably 15 or 16 when he was recording the first episodes of Steven Universe. I mean, right? He, how much? I don't know how much your voice changes at that age, but... See, I feel like the earlier episodes, he has this really peppy voice, and then like as the series goes on, there are a few episodes where he has like a more mannish voice. And then like as of the most recent Steven Bob episodes, he still had that little kid peppy voice again. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's definitely a kid voice, but as it's gone on, like, he's added a little bit more, like, texture and depth to the voice. Like, it doesn't just sound like a voice, it sounds like a full character. Like, going by, like, the vocal performance, like, when you first have a character, it takes you a while to sort of get the feel for what the character is. And I imagine that the actors weren't informed of the full extent of, like, all of this universe. I mean, I think they might have told Estelle about what her character was like because that's kind of important but it just really felt like as it went along he really got a grasp of who the character was better and that could reflect in the voice in a more subtle way i got what you're saying a whole lot about the series changed the tone of the episodes the tone of the main character's voice but bubble buddies 
like I said, was very interesting to compare Connie then to Connie now. I mean, she's not the focus character, but she has arced so hard. I mean, even before Sworn to the Sword. I know. Huge difference. I mean, I feel like this episode is the only episode we really see. I mean, we see flashes of it, but as a full manifestation of her character, this is the only episode we see Connie constantly dogging herself and thinking, like, no one wants to be around me or anything like that. And even then, that's only really at the end. Up to that point, she was pretty civil, like, oh, yeah, we're trapped in a magic bubble. Okay, get me out. You know, that's just a thing that happens. Yeah, she handled it very, very well. I mean, she does read a lot, so I I bet it was quite an adventure for her. This may not be worth diving too deeply into, but it's always surprising to me that Connie says she doesn't have any friends, because she's clearly a very friendly, nice person, and she allegedly would be around a lot of peers if she goes to school. Yeah, I mean, that isn't, I think part of it might have to be, like, her parents' influence, because they seem very protective and, like, very peculiar and, like, particular about what she's allowed to do and probably who she's allowed to hang out with. And if Steven didn't force her into this proximity with him, she probably wouldn't have hung out with him for very long. Right. I guess that's a good point. I think it's less her parents, um, because, I mean, even before they got to know Steven and Fusion Cuisine, Connie seemed to come to Beach City quite a bit by herself. I think it's less her parents not wanting her to hang out with people, and more that she just doesn't believe in herself, and she she just assumes people don't want to hang out with her, because I know that I've encountered plenty of people in my lifetime who are the exact same way. They're great people, and, you know, anyone would be lucky to be friends with them, but they just want to dog themselves all the time and think that no one does want to hang out with them. Yeah. You know, plus she reads a lot, and really, She's very who understands those people? <laughs> <laughs> Book nerds. Ugh. She was reading the Catcher. Worst. She was reading Catcher in the Rye when Stephen bumped into her. Of all books, she was. Yep. Like that's like that's very concerning to me because she looks like she's in elementary school, and that's pretty heavy for uh, elementary. I'm pretty sure school. I read 1984 when I was in elementary school, and that wow. book has some choice. Yeah, we had some interesting teachers. I guess Connie is just quite precocious with the literature. I mean, you saw how into the unfamiliar familiar you know, <laughs> oh she goodness. got. I mean, I'm very sympathetic to how much she's overanalyzing that book or that book series. <laughs> you, GC? Sympathetic to people overanalyzing things? I know, what? it's a what? stretch, but I'm able to put myself in other people's shoes. <laughs> Man, let's hope Connie doesn't go starting any fan sites. Oh, boy. But yeah, I mean, because this episode is in the earlier era like there it feels so light in comparison so i i almost don't know quite what to talk about other than you know this is connie's first appearance and i just have a funny little side thing i noticed steven really likes to do flourishes whenever he's doing something simple like when he does his signature for jamie he has to add in a whole bunch of stars (laughs) when he's illustrating the harpoon gun Oh, yeah. On the bubble, he has to add in all this extraneous detail, and he spends a lot of effort making the rays come out of the sun. <laughs> and the clouds. I thought that was such beautiful characterization for Stephen that even when he has an important task to focus on, he, <laughs> he's focused on making his world a little bit brighter there. <laughs> he's just an adorable little boy. Focuses on the small details. Would you say that Stephen is stopping to smell the roses? <laughs> nice. Ah! That is barely even coherent. You're jealous. It's okay. Uh, probably my favorite scene in the whole episode is like in the very beginning with the bike when he's like trying to show off and be like, I'm this cool kid with my cool bike and she's not paying attention <laughs> and he falls over and gets so embarrassed and he just like cries and runs away. Like I had so much <laughs> sympathy for that moment. 
That was such a cute moment. He doesn't moment. even pick up his bike. He just leaves yeah. it there. <laughs> he just had to get out of there. It's such a sweet electric blue finish, too. You, you just hope the sand didn't damage it. <laughs> well, he it's in Lion now, so... Is that the same bike from Rose's Scabbard? Probably. How many bikes could he possibly have? For some reason, I feel like that bike being red. Well, maybe maybe, maybe Onion goes out and gets some for him, if you know <laughs> what I mean. Could just be a continuity error, where I'm remembering things wrong. I don't know. But you're right, that does make the most sense. Like, why would he have more than one bike? I think it was the same helmet, for sure. Speaking of Onion, I like how when Onion hits the bubble with the harpoon, and it hits the trawler above the waterline and still sinks it. <laughs> oh, does it? Oh, yeah. I didn't notice that detail. They cause so much property damage in this episode. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Well, they don't damage the roller coaster at all. Have y'all seen that YouTube video where they, uh, this guy, he goes through the H-Steven Universe episodes, counts up all the collateral damage, and it's like built to Greg or something like that? Oh, yeah. I was just about to mention that. But yeah, that is a really good YouTube channel. They, they have to be billing it to Greg because otherwise the insurance rates in that city would be very, very high. And insurance rates on cities by the beach are already really high, but if you have magical alien people living there, I imagine it's astronomical. Yeah, you're already at risk of flooding, but then when you add in the, you know, idea that, you know, alien space rocks might cause a flood or just destroy the town, you know, fighting another alien space rock. Ooh. Right, it's not even a mite. They do that once a yeah, week. Their, their reinsurers have to have reinsurers just to even have a chance of staying solvent. I mean, that's why the pizza family got so mad. Like, that was his business. And they were just like, eh. I like how they did get so mad in that episode, and yet in, like, the return and jailbreak when everyone's glass windows were broken down and everyone had to leave the yeah, town, they came back and they were like, okay, let's just clean it up. It's fine. We don't care. They're just, they're Steven's family or whatever. <laughs> well, Ronaldo did make that cutting documentary against them. That editing was so good. The best. The best. This is something we could have brought up in any number of episodes, but I don't think we've talked about it before. This Crystal Gems, in the sense of needing to take down these gem monsters, in the sense of it being their responsibility to do it, that they need to do it specifically, it seems like that's not really true. A lot of these gem monsters can be taken down pretty easily, like Steven does it with no help in this episode, using no magic. Yeah, just his amazing acrobatic ability. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like it's it's more like, you know... They're responsible for their even being there, so as long as they get taken care of, that's the most important part. And it's not even just that. I mean, think what happens if the humans have to take care of this gem. Well, they can cause the gem to poof itself, a little bit of acrobatics, but that gem's going to sit there for several minutes or several hours or several days, and eventually the monster is going to come back. So the humans aren't going to stand for that, and they're going to destroy the gem. The right. Crystal Gems obviously don't want that to happen, so therefore it has to be their responsibility because, you know, if they're, you know, their kill, their keep, they get to decide this guy goes into the bubble. I think there's also the fact that, like, the gems are going to be different strengths. Like, if I walk into my house and I see a beetle on the floor, I'm just going to scoop a beetle and put it outside. But if I walk in and, like, suddenly my living room is infested with black widows, I'm going to go outside and, like, burn the house down and call it pest control or some, something like that. I'm not going to deal with that. I'm going to let someone who knows what they're doing do it. Hopefully you'll call the pest control people before you burn the house down. <laughs> well, the first thing I'm going to do is scream at the top of my lungs and pee my pants. <laughs> then we'll go from there. But yeah, like, sure, a human probably could take down, like, a lower tier, weaker gem. But if you get, like, a centipedal, I don't think, I really don't think that Sadie could have taken down a centipedal 
in her like primary form. Oh, That's good. just that wasn't gonna happen. The centipede was too much for all three of the crystal gems, so I don't see how Sadie could have even stood a chance. Right. And, and sure, but I don't mean even like individual unarmed humans. I mean like an armed human. Give it to like a policeman. Maybe a gun could have done something. And if not a policeman with like a pistol, then certainly a military operation. And it's interesting because like you think that would have happened at some point, but it, for whatever reason, like humans just kind of tend to ignore this stuff or avoid it. Well, if the monsters are attracted to the crystal gems, they might not really. You know, they're on task of moving to Beach City, so they're not going to stop to bother any humans on the way. I don't know. Yeah, the the monster only attacked Connie because she had the red, which I am curious about. Here's my thought process on the matter. As far as, like, other areas of the world go, we have seen probably other areas of the world, but they're mostly uninhabited and have, like, this gem stuff growing on it. The only area of the world we've seen with actual people has been parts of North America, specifically the West Coast. East Coast. East Coast. East Coast. East Coast. Yes, that coast, not the other coast. We know that at some point there was a gem war. Greg said that lots of humans died. So who's to say that like big swaths of like Europe and like Africa and like the Middle East in like this version of the world are just like desolate with no humans living there? Well, we really have no way of knowing for sure, but I the war was thousands of years yeah, I mean, in the past. Look at that diversity in Beach City. I mean, the pizza family is from Ghana, so Africa's probably not desolate. Otherwise, well, Africa they- is a big continent. I'm thought I'm thinking more like North Africa. If we assume, okay. well, I guess we have no re- way of knowing where exactly the war took place. But my guess is still probably close somewhere to Europe because Pearl knows about knighthood. Yeah. Again, I still maintain that Pearl probably came to associate the term knighthood with the ideals she learned earlier. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I just I just don't see post-apocalyptic for humans anywhere in the cards right now. We, we haven't seen yeah. much, it's true, but we know they have railroads moving cargo long distance. I'm not arguing for it being post-apocalyptic. I'm arguing for like specific swaths of land where people live in, in the now and here. Just completely desolate, like the land burnt, incapable of sustaining uh, life, or at least no one's like going to want to live like there. Like there's no Florida? Right, no Florida. But that's probably a good choice, and we're better for it. Yeah, most <laughs> likely. Yeah, I mean, the kindergarten's definitely what you're describing, but we don't know if there are others. It's only implied that there was the one, but I can't imagine they only had one of them. The Earth is kind of big. I think that also raz- raises a question of, uh, what is the geo? Oh, good grief, that's yeah. a question. We have no leads, though. Paradox Spaceship Hand, there's the argument that that is relatively new technology and they didn't use that in the first gym war. But considering that Rose is only able to save herself and a few of her close friends, I'm thinking there was probably some kind of massive strike from space just desolating lots of gems and people. That's where my that's thought process comes from. Yeah. I guess that's kind of like an unstated assumption. I'm saying when I think that there's big swaths of land that are just like burnt down and we can't use them. I'm kind of talking about like the geode and various theory things. Like, is there any lore in this episode? Do we gain anything from the gem monster that we see? We don't really get to fully appreciate what we saw, but there is a cool thing. After Stephen and Connie are underwater, they roll past one of the swords from the temple statue. Oh, really? You can't really identify it properly as a sword until the ocean is removed in Ocean Gem, and you can see, oh yeah, that's definitely a statue of a sword. But mm. you can you can make out, oh hey, that's what they rolled past. I think, okay, if we do want to pull some lore from this episode, I think that could be that while some monsters are hostile, some probably aren't. Maybe they have like ticks or like triggers that are going to make them want to attack people. Because that jelly worm monster thing that they ended up killing... 
it seemed pretty chill with what it was doing, just like eating that seaweed. It didn't like start to freak out until it saw Connie's bracelet glowing and thought, that is one tasty meatball. Pearl mentioned the shaking, and she was like, I don't know what that is that's too frequent for earthquakes, which implied that's true. Re- re- that monster, so we don't know where it came from. I don't think it was attacking, though. It was just its method of movement was very destructive. Yeah. That is very true. I mean, it's dangerous, but normally docile. What I thought was very interesting about this episode is that is very clearly not our world kind of seaweed that it's eating. It's it's eating like gem seaweed or something, just like in Island Adventure. Those are not our world fish. Those are gem fish. Yeah, they're, it was very strange. Are you positing that those are fish that came from the gem homeworld or that earth fish evolved differently as a result of exposure to gem stuff? I don't even know. That's why I'm hesitant to use the term gem fish or gem seaweed. I would assume the latter. latter. Yeah, because I don't know why you would bring fish. They don't. I mean, it's like why did human sailors bring rats? The rats were just there on the ship. But but fish. You need water. uh, (laughs) They don't just swim onto a boat. (laughs) I don't even know. I'm just saying. At the at this stage in the series, we didn't know for a fact that the gem monsters were corrupted gems, although it was always a very popular theory. I just kind of assumed that the gem monsters were what gem wildlife is like. I mean, it makes sense that gems are bodies projected by rocks. Why would the gem monsters be any, or why would the gem wildlife be any different? I mean, I just assumed the whole world was magical. I definitely agree with the theory that, like, Earth life just evolved differently with the presence of gems, especially if we consider like so many gems were broken, like their their gems were just like shattered, destroyed. Who's to say that like those gems weren't eventually like grounded to dust that mixed with like earth soil and stuff? Different things eat that gem dust soil and that that mutate them, even if it's not like a natural evolution in order to keep pace with with other gem creatures. But we only ever see the weird fish around Mask Island, so I think it has more to do with living in that location. Either that or it's a species that was introduced in that spot and reproduced. And since it's a very gemmy, you know, very gem-influenced place, I mean, it has waterfalls out of nowhere, the huge geodes, that's the only place they can survive. I think there's more to Mask Island that we've yet to see and that is probably going to have at least some minor minorly greater importance in the future. But I think it's also possible as for those specific Mask Island fish, that might have just been like a design choice, like just yeah. a stylistic thing. I mean, but as for Mask Island, yeah, I agree with you that there's probably more going on. I mean, oh, they gave us its name. They should at least give us uh, give us a juicy detail, juicy secret about Mask Island, you know? I think it's only fair. Consider what those big rocks, those big gem jewel things were. Those were geodes. Big geodes. Big cut open geodes. And I think it's probably important that an entire episode took place there, not just because of the scenery, and they warped there in um, Warp Tour. Like, there's definitely something more going on with Mask Island. Yeah. Oh, of course. They wouldn't design an entire location if they they were only going to use it for one episode. I mean, there are only so many warp pads, right? And they were built for a reason. There are probably, what, 72 warp pads at most? (laughs) What makes you say that? I mean, like, I'm not disagreeing, but I why think do you- that's how many. I think that's how many flask robinoids Pearl or not Pearl Peridot, other waifu dispatched to the <laughs> oh planet. So I, I just kind of figured true. that there's probably no more than that many. I mean, it's possible that the robinoids could be expected to move around the planet and fix other warp pads. But I'm kind of figuring, well, the warp pads might be down, so we'll just shoot one robinoid at each warp pad. Problem solved. 
I buy it. That makes sense to me. Very brief acknowledgement about how happy I am that we've gone 32 episodes without using the word waifu up until this point. Sorry, do, do I have to put a dollar into the waifu jar now? Uh, I was surprised uh, when we were watching this episode to see how blatant the fact that Steven has a crush on Connie was. Yeah. In later episodes, they're a lot more subtle with that. Maybe not even a lot more, but it's at least harder to notice. But here it's like almost straight up directly stated, even to the point of the Crystal Gems all knowing and teasing him about it. Yeah, because in the other episodes, they just seem more like friends, even though like obviously there's yeah, a exactly. little more there. But the way that they interact with each other is very comfortable like friends loris knows what's going on i have every reason to believe otherwise granted like some of the hints they've thrown at us but i'm really hoping they subvert like connie and steven's relationship i mean i don't think they would and if they don't i would be happy with it either way because they are otp but i think it was less in this episode of steven having like a direct crush that he was aware of and just being really excited to meet connie i don't think steven understands his feelings towards connie in like this romantic way just yet yeah, I mean, he he's still very young and naive, and, like, he's just very friendly, and she's, like, this mis- kind of mysterious person that he doesn't really know but really wants to know. And, I mean, as we've seen them grow, like, they become almost, like, each other's half in a way. Like, so one's the strawberry and one's the biscuit. Exactly. Like, and, you know, Connie is Steven's first, like, normal human, like, actual friend. Like he says Not just that Laura's who he thinks is his yeah, friend. Yeah, like he says everyone in Beach City is his friend, but like, you know, they're he they just see him as that one weird kid that lives with the weird people. But like before he yeah. met Connie, it was really just the gems and his dad. Yeah, all those other people are associates. Connie is an actual friend. Yeah, like they hang out all the time. Who else is disappointed that Petey wasn't a closer friend? I mean, we we got him in Frybo, and I was thinking that Petey was just gonna be like this really often recurring character and you, you know, uh, Ronaldo appears more than Petey, which I'm not disappointed by. I love Ronaldo, but Petey, where you at? Yeah, that is interesting. Petey's he- too responsible to yeah. hang out with Steven. I mean, there's they're they're very got a they kind of got a dichotomy going on. I mean, they establish their different outlook right there in Frybo. Yeah. So I mean, you have to have somebody who's just as naive as Steven. Okay, but- or just like prone to fun and imagination, whereas Petey doesn't seem like he likes to have fun. Oh yeah, remember Petey pulled Steven, Steven the to the PD pulled Steven to the rides though. Like he was excited, grabbed Steven's hand and they ran to the rides together. And I mean yeah. they obviously knew one another. Petey had only just started a job at the fry shop, and with as few people are in this town, I just find it really improbable that they've never even played together before, you know? So even if it's like this really Yeah They might have hung out. He's definitely the least explored um, citizen of Beach City, I would say. He's a stick-in-the-mud kind of character. I mean, he was one of, I think, there are only two people in Mirror Jam when Lapis is doing the fart sound over and over. There's Petey and I think one other person who's not laughing. Everyone else is laughing. You gotta notice, it's like, the youngest person in the audience is one of the two people who don't find the fart joke funny. (laughs) Petey had to grow up really fast. His brother is an overgrown man-child. He had to compensate for that disappointment yeah. in his family. I don't do don't like you dare game. speak ill of Ronaldo. I Ronaldo love Ronaldo. Is doing I love big Ronaldo. Stuff. I just feel really bad for his parents. Hey, hey. He's going to be our first <laughs> diplomat to the gem homeworld. Just you wait. Every subreddit needs a mod, and Ronaldo is the mod that we need. Yep. <laughs> it's the mod that we deserve. No. No one deserves him. <laughs> no, we need him, but we don't deserve him. <laughs> uh, the fry man rises. 
Very last thing I had. This episode first aired on December 2nd, 2013. It was written and boarded by Kat Morris and Aleth Romanilos, and it was directed by Ian Jones. Oh, and it had uh, 1.61 million viewers. Wow. But yeah, what little we knew. Of course Connie would be a returning character. I still don't understand how you didn't know that. She's in the opening. I know, she was in the opening, and like I remember when the first episode first came out, we were all like, oh, wow, so that's who that mysterious girl yeah, is. Yeah, I, I, never, I never drew the connection between them. They look you, exactly I'm used to cartoons where everybody wears the same outfit. But she doesn't. <laughs> She actually wears different outfits sometimes. Exactly. She's strange. Most people on the show do, except for Steven, because he only owns one shirt. Well, he owns a million well, of the same like, shirt. Uh, yeah, she owns like a hundred versions of the same shirt. But I really appreciate that Like they showed us why he's doing that. You know, we I appreciate that we know why he's just wearing this one shirt, because Greg just had a whole bunch of them and decided, hey, let's put these to use. He's like, I need to clothe my child, and I have As no money. As Stephen gets older, he just has his unsold merch. He just, okay, you're outgrown out of the smalls. Let's go into the mediums. <laughs> I would love to do that one day, just buy bokus of the same outfit and wear it every single day and make no notice of it. Like, when I graduate and I start teaching, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the nearest professional clothing store and buy, like, seven pairs of the same shirts, seven, like, sweater vests, seven of the same bow ties, seven of the same slacks. Wear them every <laughs> single day. Every day. It'd be like that one episode of Doug where Doug shows his closet and it's full of like 10 of the same outfit. We have yet to cover that on the Toon Goons. Oh, what? No, it's on you the list. Covered that. You've <laughs> covered Rocco's Modern Life at least, right? Not yet. It's on wow. the list. Ed, Ed, and Eddie? Yes, we did do Ed, Ed, and Eddie. Okay, that's going to be the next podcast I listen to. Okay, yes. You can find the Toon Goons on iTunes. You can just search the Toon Goons. And our main hub is our website, which is thetoongoons.tumblr.com. Has all our episodes, other information to contact us. Feel free to email us with the email that you can find on that website. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. I'm GC13. I'm Ken. I am a pile of socks. And I was Nina. Thanks, Nina. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You the best. Anytime. You were great. See you all next week. Our opening and closing music is by James Roach. For more Steven Universe fan-related content, please visit LunarCSpire.com. Thank you for listening. can read 1984 GC and I'm going to be over here and I'm going to prefer 19, 19, 1985. That's my song for the podcast. Springsteen, Madonna, way before Nirvana, there was U2 and Blondie. Music still on MTV. Two kids in high school, they tell her that she's uncool, but she's still preoccupied with 19, 19, 1985.